helpful. Hey, um, we got a little different thing going on today. If you couldn't tell, we're going to mix it up a little bit. Everybody, um, you know him and you love him, but I want to introduce him uh, to you. This is my friend, Scott Irwin. He's with me. Scott serves uh, here at Bethel Hope Reportage as the director of Campus Life, and um, it was drawn to my attention that this past uh, uh, month, you notched your one-year anniversary with our church, having been we in Indiana it. back in Indiana with Bethany. We love you guys so much, and it's just been so cool to have you guys here. Um, a lot of the growth that's happening in our church, particularly with students, has been really attributed to the efforts that Scott has put forward. So I just want to say, uh, before we get going, like, dude, I love you. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad we can do this together. This is your, like, anniversary present. It's to get to preach with me. <laughs> oh, thanks, Tim. Yeah. That's- I thought it'd be fine, at least. You could have done a mug or something. <laughs> a bit I like, I would have taken the trip, but <laughs> preaching's fine. Preaching's fine. Well, there's, uh, there's two of us here, and we're going to do something a little different here. Um, we, we're, we're coming to the end of our series uh, called uh, This is HP. We've been saying that we're more than a crowd, we're family. And uh, we've been walking through this series. It's been a refreshing time for me as sometimes when you get into the minutia of the Bible, you forget that you can zoom out a little bit and remember like what's actually going on here. Like what are we actually doing as the church? And that's what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks here at HP. We've been talking about how worship uh, makes us more than a crowd when we gather together and we actually ascribe praise to Jesus. We're not just some band and some crowd playing some concert, but there's actual worship going on. And worship, even baptism as an act of worship is what sets us and pulls us out of the crowd and into the family. The family of God is made up of those who worship him. So we're more than a crowd. We talk about how this community needs to be then. If we're more than a crowd, you've got to be more than a face. Where where the true Christian community can be one where you step out of the crowd into the family and you're known fully and loved fully and embraced uh, by those whom Christ has been reconciling and redeeming. And last week, uh, Scott capably, Scott did an awesome job preaching last week uh, out of Acts. Absolutely, absolutely. Out of Acts chapter 6, where we talk about service being more than a task, it's ministry. And each one of us has a gift to build up the body of Christ. And so we, we ask the question, how are, how are we all doing that to meet real needs? And not overlooking people who are excluded, uh, but seeing needs and meeting needs. And today, uh, today we come to the last word, the last word that we have for uh, this series. And we're going to zoom out. Uh, we're going to zoom out of the book of Acts. You know, typically here at Bethel, what we do is we take one sentence in the Bible and we pick it apart, comma by comma, word by word, letter by letter sometimes. And don't you love that? You love that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a hallmark of our church. It's called expositional exegetical preaching. We want to let the word do the work. Um, but sometimes in the, in the midst of that, we can lose a little bit of the threads that hold everything together, really to hold the big picture thought in our minds all at the same time. And we have a word this morning that we want to sort of zoom out and take the book of Acts as a whole and zoom out and see what this word would have for us because this one word is the word that gives focus to who we are and what we're doing here at the church. This one word puts everything into context. This one word holds the whole entire book of Acts together. Am I doing a good enough job selling it? Yeah, real good. Do you want to know I'm what ready. the word is? I'm ready. The I got word right here, is but... mission. Did you know that? Of course you knew it. It's been up on stage for four weeks. You're all like, <laughs> what a terrible, the rest of the sermon goes better than this, I promise. Uh, mission, mission. We're, we want to talk about mission. Yeah, no, no surprise there, right? It's been up on stage for four weeks. We're talking about mission this morning, and, and this is a word that not only uh, we, we see in Scripture, but here at Bethel, we use this word because we want to make sure we stay on task because there's a lot of things that we could do here at a church, a lot of ministry, a lot of programs we can do. 
but we want to stay focused on what our calling is as a church body and as individual disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we want to really understand what does it mean to live on mission for Christ? And this morning, we're going to have a working definition of of mission. What does it mean to live on mission? And, And here's one working definition that we are called to be and to make disciples in the everyday stuff of life. Oh, that's good. You got to say that one more time. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, slow down thanks. for you, Dan. Yeah. Please. We are called to be, right? <laughs> we're called to be disciples and we're called to make disciples right. in the everyday stuff of life. And, and we want to define it this way because I think so often we can think of mission as something that we go and do somewhere else. But what we want to learn this morning, what we're going to dig into this morning is that mission is more than a trip. And we love, love, love missions trips here at Bethel. We call them go trips, and we hope that each, each and every one of you go on a go trip in the near future. We love missionaries here. We just commissioned the fries last week down right. to Peru, and we support dozens of missionaries. But uh, all of this is great, but we think that mission, when we think that mission is just something that we go and do over there, right? Mm. Over there, we're missing out on the heart of what Jesus intends for the church to be and for what his disciples are called to do. Hmm. And, and here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. At the beginning of the book of Acts, which we've been walking through, and this is HP, this series, it begins with a powerful commission by Jesus in Acts 1.8. This is, uh, Jesus says this to his disciples. He is leaving. He is commissioning them to go and continue his work. And this is what he says to them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we talked about this last week, the geographical growth and procession of the church and the gospel. And if you look at this statement right here by Jesus, I think there's, there's two sides to this. Some of it is, is a little bit prediction, that Jesus is predicting what's going to happen. But the other side of it is a command, Right? He's, he's saying, he's predicting the future, saying, you, you are going to go. This is going to happen. You're going to go into all the world. You're going to be put into positions, positions where you need to share my name, what I've done, what you've experienced. But there's also a dimension of, of command here and instruction. Right, You go and be my witness. You, I choose you. I'm picking you to be the one that is going to carry the mission forward. Right, You are given the Holy Spirit, power from on high, but this is your task to spread the word here and there and, and everywhere in the entire world. Yeah, man, that's so good. That's so good. And that's been the mission of, uh, I guess we could call it Christianity ever since the beginning, uh, to spread the gospel as the word there is witnesses. Um, recently, uh, Scott, you know I like to stay up to date on my statistics. I'm kind of a nerd that way. I, I saw a Barna study. Barna is a group that uh, sort of studies evangelicals and our patterns and what we think and how trends are from generation to generation. And not just more than a couple months ago, they came out with a study that said um, almost half, it was 47% of the people aged 36 and under believe that witnessing to somebody else with the intent that you would change their beliefs is morally wrong. 47% of 36-year-olds and below. Um, what's interesting about that, though, is that the same study, the same group of people, the same 36 and below-year-olds, 94% of them, so exactly double, exactly double the amount of people that said that witnessing was morally wrong, 
exactly double them, said that the best thing that could ever happen to anybody is to meet Jesus in their life and have a relationship with him. It's a little inconsistent. It's a li- <laughs> That's the understatement of the day. <laughs> a little inconsistent. And um, I know some of you are like, I know, millennials are the worst. Uh, and and I, we fall in that category. We're not we great. fall in that 36 and under. And I, what I think is happening, because this is a real problem, and the reason we need to talk about this one word today and actually understand it and have our attitudes and affections changed towards being on mission for Jesus is because... Um, we maybe, this, this indicates, the study indicates, we maybe have um, bought into a dualistic philosophy. What I mean is, um, it's possible that some of us hearing that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, have, have, have accepted him and said, yes, I want that for my life. I understand what he did for me. But what an American thing to say. For me, I want what's best for me, for me, for me. And so the problem is that our culture tells us that what's good for you is good for you, but maybe not for me. I think what has happened is in the church, a lot of us have, have equated mission to be something that's good for me, but maybe not good for you. And it's allowed us to live this duality to say, I know that the best thing you could ever have is Jesus Christ, but I want to respect your opinion more than my own. We call that tolerance. I want to respect your opinion more than my own, so I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm not going to push it on you. That is problematic. That is, as Scott said, inconsistent because Jesus gave us a command. He said, you will be my, what's the word? Witnesses. You will be the people who stand on the stand and tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You will be the ones who, I will do something in your life that you will see with your own eyes and have an experience in your own heart and in your life, and your job as a witness is to not plead the fifth, but if you see something, to say something. I mean, that's something we've said here at other church. You remember that old PSA from Homeland Security back in 2003? Uh, the, the reaction of 9-11, they put up all over uh, Manhattan, if you see something, say something. It's kind of like to fight terrorism. That's not an ter- anti-terrorism slogan. That's a Christian church slogan. That's the way we live our lives on mission. That each and every one of us, if you see God do something in your heart, if you see God do something around you, that we wouldn't just see something and say nothing, but if you see something, say something. And this is what Christ followers have been doing ever since the day that Jesus, thank God they've been doing this ever since the day Jesus spoke those words in Acts 1.8. Yeah, and thank God, right? Because that's how we got here. Thank God that Christians have been sharing the gospel for generations. Uh, And we can trace this historically a little bit, what happened when the apostles, they carried out Jesus' words in Acts 1-8. And something absolutely remarkable happened when they began to do that. Yeah. That the world began to change as people began to change. Right? It wasn't that God just gave this command and that the world began to change on its own. No, it's that God gave this command through Jesus Christ and the world began to change as individuals began to change. I think one of the ways that we see this is in the conduct of the apostles themselves because if you look in the Gospels, it's, it's the disciples, right? They're not called the apostles yet. It's the, the disciples and they're like these bumbling, stumbling, struggling people trying to figure out who Jesus Christ really is. But... After his death and his resurrection, they're not the disciples anymore. They're called like, the, the apostles. 
like it's such a stronger word. Like I'd rather be an apostle. Than so disciple. much more. Yeah. So much better. The apostles, right? No, they are sent. They are being sent by Jesus. And, and they have gone from being uh, these, these scared, uh, bumbling, stumbling disciples to people who are ferocious champions for the gospel. And they had this burning desire to share the experience that changed their entire life. And we're going to look at a couple of these disciples. Let's, yeah. let's see what they look at, let's what look like, what their lives look like. Uh, first, we see James. We see the brother of John. And we believe that he was preaching the gospel in Jerusalem when we pick up his story in Acts 12. And this is what is said about James, the brother of John. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was James, a disciple of Jesus Christ, whose death acted as a witness to the power of Jesus. This same James, who started his life as a politically driven individual who wanted political power, when he saw Jesus' death and resurrection, what he was doing in his own life, this power-hungry disciple suddenly gave up all of that to follow Jesus and was willing to follow him even to death. Yeah, and he was one of the first apostles to see Christ again in heaven, which is a really special thing. The rest of Acts chapter 12 uh, is given to that um, last sentence there. He proceeded to arrest Peter also, and it picks up Peter's story. And Peter is put in prison. And this wasn't the only time that Peter was put in prison. Uh, church history and church tradition tells us, and church tradition is not the New Testament. It is really just stories that have been passed down along with the written words. And we don't put our faith in church tradition, but sometimes it is very helpful for us to understand what the church has understood about people. And church tradition tells us that Peter was um, one of the chief enemies of the Roman emperor Nero. He dedicated himself to the destruction of anyone who stood against him, and that was chiefly the apostles in that day. One historian wrote that before Peter was crucified upside down in Rome, Peter was cast into a horrible prison called the Mamertine. For nine months, he was in absolute darkness. He endured monstrous torture. He was, um, he was manacled when, when, you're like, when you're strung up to a post. And in utter darkness, he, he stayed there for about nine months. Can you imagine that? That'd be absolutely awful. And yet, in that prison, we have record that Peter witnessed to the saving power of Jesus Christ, who said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. In a Roman prison, Peter, chained to a post, witnessed to 49 of the guards, and they all got saved. We have the names of two of them. The two of them is, is Processus and Martinius. And uh, I can't imagine, or I can't help but imagine that um, when Paul wrote that letter that we've been studying to the Romans, he wrote it to the Christians in Rome, to the church in Rome. Have you ever wondered how there became a church in Rome? Is it not possible that Peter, from his prison cell in the dungeon, who had converted 49 people, that's a pretty good core group for a church, I think, <laughs> uh, might not have played a very instrumental role. The, the, the mission was spreading. The mission was going. Yeah. You could look at Peter. You could look at Thomas, too. Thomas is one of my favorite apostles. He's often called uh, Doubting Thomas. And his story is recorded in the gospel where the resurrected Jesus came to the disciples in the upper room and all of them were enthralled by Jesus. And Thomas was like, yeah, I'm not buying it. Not buying it. Unless I see your, the holes in your hands and the gash in your side, I, I'm not believing that this is 
Jesus, my Jesus. Wish, I bet he wishes he could take those words back. I think so. Think? I yeah. think so. <laughs> yeah. Because because he did believe that this was the actual Jesus who rose again. It changed his life, and it changed his life so much to the point that he didn't become doubting Thomas, but he was so on fire for the gospel, such a desire to witness that church tradition tells us he made it to India by 52 AD. There are uh, there are places and groups of Christians in India who were converted by his testimony, and he ended up dying there for Jesus on mission. Which is awesome. We could talk about Matthew. Matthew uh, wrote the Gospel of Matthew primarily to the uh, Jewish people, but we have record of him going to Ethiopia where he was crucified preaching the gospel that because Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead that you can have a relationship with God. They didn't like that message, so they killed him. And yet, to the ends of the earth, this is where uh, the apostles went. So I hope you're getting the picture, right? Um, um, that, that where Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, they were witnesses. We pick up the story, and you can look in, uh, if you've got your Bibles open, to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Uh, it says, now there were in the church at Antioch, that's in uh, Jerusalem there, close to there, Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And when they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. In other words, we could say, for the mission that I'm sending them on. And so they fasted and prayed and they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And again, this is what we did last week if you were here for Alan and Diane Fry who we recommissioned, we laid our hands on them and said, Lord, you've set them aside in their lives to go be uh, on mission for you in another place. But if you talk to the Fry's, they don't consider Northwest Indiana their home anymore. Did you know that? They long to go back to Lima, Peru because that's where their family and their friends are. How great is the mission of God that wherever you go, there you have a job to do. And I think just as we looked at, at Paul here, we can continue on. Paul's travels took him everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. Everywhere. He had three missionary journeys, and he was uh, planning to go as far as Spain. But uh, we're going to hop into his story in Acts 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up. We're going to rest here in Acts 17 um, for a little bit. Acts 17, starting in uh, verse 22. But Paul's travels, they took him everywhere, eventually to what's recorded in Acts 17. And, and we see Paul arriving in Athens. So it's a city in Greece, this huge, politically important city that was uh, really established and had two things going for it. Athens was known for its philosophers, and it was known for its idols, right? It was a city full of really smart people, and it was a city full of false gods. And this is what Paul walked into. And in Acts 17, it's recorded as he, you can imagine that as he lands at this port, he, his ship docks at the port, and he gets off, and he's walking up to this incredibly huge city. It's an incredibly historic city. As he walks through the gate, he can look around and see the skyline completely dominated by temples. Hmm. Completely dominated temples. You see the Acropolis and the Parthenon. But not only was, was the skyline dominated by temples, that each and every building had shrines and images of gods and goddesses carved into them. Hmm. And that might be a little foreign to us, but I don't think it's so different than what we experience today. We might not have temples in our skylines necessarily, but idols still dominate our newsfeed on a daily basis. And we've set up shrines to entertainment in each and every one of our homes. And I wonder if, what would Paul say if he was like driving down 30 and he saw all of the car dealerships, 
Like, right. oh, these people worship right. the Ford, right. Right? Right. the Toyota. Right. Or, or if he walked into our living rooms and saw us going like, hey, Siri, turn the lights off. And, <laughs> and he'd be like, man, you guys made an idol out of your voice. Yeah. <laughs> love to hear myself speak. That's just me. I this is, oh, I love Siri too. Actually, I have Alexa, so. I don't like Alexa. I'm no. point, sorry. <laughs> but right, this is, like, it's not so, so far off what we experience today. What Paul had in Athens and Acts 17, really, if we look at it, it's, it's a clinic for us in how we carry out the mission of Christ in the everyday stuff of life. Yeah. And so one of the first things that we noticed here in Acts 17, you can look at verse 16, that Paul felt for the lost. There was a burden on his soul for the people in Athens. You see in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul had a heart for lost people. What had happened to him, what he experienced in his life motivated him to feel for others. His spirit was provoked within him. And the next verse tells us that he had to tell them about Christ. He saw something that happened in his life, and so he had to say something about it. We see in the next verse, so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And not only did he have a heart for the lost, we see in this verse that Paul engaged those around him. The the text says those who happened to be there. And isn't that where mission starts? Like, isn't that where mission starts? We ought to ask this question, who's who's around me? Yeah. right? Right? God God has allowed specific people into my life and into your life. Who has God allowed my life and their life to intersect where our paths cross? One way that um, Ed Stetzer said this really, really well, one way that Ed Stetzer uh, says this is that mission is realizing that we are all missionaries to our own zip code. That we are all missionaries to our own zip code. God has put you in your specific place for a reason. The gospel uh, in short, right, it's, it's a full contact sport. We're not dancing around people here. It's best shared with whomever we're around. Yeah. There's this, like, tactile nature to it. We're like, yes. whoever happened to be in Paul's vicinity, that's who he preached to. And what a good lesson for us. And so he, let, he felt for the loss. He engaged those around him. But um, he did it by uh, opening his mouth. Scott, do you remember maybe in seminary you had this, like, uh, moment, this overzealous, like, seminary professor or even a student who told you that, that fancy phrase that we repeat in the church foolishly. Um, it says, uh, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> it's the worst. I don't the ever want to hear that around here. Ever. <laughs> ever. And here's why. You have to use words! To preach the gospel, you got to communicate something. And I want to I show how Paul communicated something right here in Acts chapter 17. If we look uh, at verse 22 is his address. It's actually really short. I'm going to read the whole thing. I, and as I'm reading, I want you to see this, that Paul, as he, didn't, as, he, as he fell for the loss and as he engaged those around him, he also found common ground with the people that he was speaking with. Paul found common ground. Look at this. I want to show it to you, to you here. So Paul, standing in the midst of the uh, Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which we, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I mean, so this is Paul's outline. I mean, what a powerful message, simple gospel, so good. He said, God created, God's close to his creation. He calls for repentance. He's gonna judge us. Uh, but all of this has been accomplished through the person who God raised from the dead. Hint, hint, it's Jesus Christ. So um, we see in Paul common ground being worked between the people in Athens and the faith. Um, this is very different than how Peter approached in Acts chapter 2. Peter looked at the Jewish people and said, you killed Jew Jesus, repent, right? That's a little harsh. Um, Paul here is showing us, and, and this is a lesson for all of us, um, that you don't have to be angry when you preach the gospel. Amen. Yeah. I mean, I think the world has had enough of angry Christians. And I, I think what we learned from Paul is that the best way for us to live our life on mission is to be full of grace and truth the same way Jesus was full of grace and truth. Not to lose the truth, but to do so in a way where we build a bridge from their life to our life. And with every observation, every cultural indication, being able to lead them one plank at a time from where they are back to where Jesus would have them go in full faith and submission of their life where they say, I see it, Jesus is Lord. We want to do that. We want to build a common ground so that people could uh, find Jesus. And one of the ways he did this was by quoting poets and lyrics, which I think is genius, absolutely genius. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if I don't listen to, I don't read enough poetry, or listen to enough songs to do that, but I, I love that idea of, of, of building a bridge. Like, we're all trying um, to walk over that bridge of salvation to find Christ, and not everybody's bridge is the same. Not everybody's bridge is the same. Right. And, and this is what we see, the third thing we see here in, in Acts 17, is that Paul tailored his message to his audience. Paul tailored his message to his audience. He saw these philosophers. He saw these um, wise men, and he tailored his message to them. Paul had an understanding of the, of the culture that he was in, the city that was in, and he had an understanding of the gospel. And these are the two things we're trying to mesh in people's lives. We understand what Christ has done for us in the gospel. We understand what's going on in your life. How do we build a bridge to link those two things together? Because the gospel, in, in one sense, is kind of this uh, one-size-fits-all message, right? That all of us have fallen short, that all of us are sinners, that all of us are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and that all of us can respond to the gospel. It's, it's a one-size-fits-all, but it's not really a one-size-fits-all in witnessing hmm. most of the time. I think that there's a personalization that we should think about when we share our story. And when we get to know the people we're sharing our story with. 
People who live on mission are those who know the culture and who are aware of how people are thinking. And this is how we build a bridge between the worlds of 2019 and their story to what happened to Jesus Christ in his day. Yeah. And so Paul feeling for the lost, engaging those around them, finding common ground and tailoring his message to who God had put in front of him bears itself out all the way through to the end of uh, Acts chapter 28. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 29, where we pick up our story. You just find your way to Acts 29. And some of you are doing that. Stop it. There is no Acts 29. I'm sorry. That was a setup for some of you. You're like, where's Acts 29? My Bible stops at 28. Uh, your Acts 29 is actually in your bulletin, and I'd love for you to, I'm, I'm being serious now, we, we, um, we copied a, a handout that I want to walk you through. Acts 29 for us begins in 1909. Part of the message that the apostles um, carried forward went out to all the ends of the earth, and if you know anything about the missionary journeys that were first launched from, you know, the book of Acts, it eventually led to the gospel being preached on every single continent, including this one. And at the turn of the 20th century, uh, one of the things we need to know about our own history is that many people were immigrating in from all corners of the world here to Gary, Indiana. Remember that song, Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana. I don't remember, I just know that part. Uh, and, and so you know this because the steel mills in our region were, were, were where the jobs were. People from all over the world were coming in, bringing their faith with them. I mean, this is a story of my family, which immigrated into the Hammond, East Chicago, uh, Munster area. And uh, I'm sure this is true of many of your families as well. In 1909, there was a pastor named George Griffith who had two former members of his church move to Gary, Indiana. And on a visit in 1909 in January, he started uh, asking them, well, have you found a church to come to? Because where we live, you used to come to our church, but now where are you attending church? And both these members said, well, there's no Baptist church here. And um, he, being a, an ambitious guy that he was, George Griffith, uh, said, well, I don't, I don't know if we can allow for that to happen in such a booming place. It's my job. I'm going to make it my job to work with the Baptist Association and see that we can start a Baptist church. Would you guys help me start it? And so for the first six months, George Griffith worked in Gary, Indiana to start uh, getting lists of people, names of people who belong to other Baptist churches everywhere that might be easy to start a church with that he could rally together. By 1910, there was um, a handful of people and there was a brand new pastor that had been hired. His name was, I believe, H.E. Uh, Smith, I think was his name. And uh, Smith was tasked with purchasing three plots of land in downtown Gary. And here's a picture from our archives of this exact plot of land and this exact community from 1910. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And this is a, uh, this is legit. I mean, we have these uh, archives here in our, our building. I'm so grateful to the people of Central Baptist Church for preserving these. And this is a um, part of, I think, the whatever the times of Northwest Indiana was in 1910. This is our Easter picnic, and you see at the bottom towards the, he's the guy with the hat in his hand. That's uh, J.E. Smith. And look at what he says underneath there. He says, uh, new, uh, New Broadway, uh, or near Broadway, within 35 feet of the $200,000 YMCA building. Isn't that crazy? It's an expensive building. $200,000. And you can see it's in this various stage of construction. That's the YMCA building right behind there. <laughs> look what it says. Does this look good for Gary? Then send us a dollar or two to raise the walls and cover the building this summer. Shameless, right? Some of you are like, I know pastors are just talking about money because they want to build their buildings. But this guy, 
Uh, J.E. Smith was so committed to the mission of Jesus that uh, they scrounged together whatever they could. And listen, nobody in this congregation had money. Nobody. Everybody say nobody. Nobody. They were trying to raise a couple hundred dollars to dig a foundation. And after going here and throw, J.E. Smith finally was able to connect, and it was the women. The women of, of Indiana, the Women's Mission Board, loaned the church the first $5,000 to build the building. Isn't that amazing? I mean, yeah, you go girl, I guess. Uh, uh, super, super cool. And so what they did, they built a basement building planning in the future that the mission was going to go forward, that they were going to preach the gospel, and, and that they were going to need to build this thing a little bit taller to welcome people in. So for the first uh, years, they built that building, and um, they spent their winters with a really smoky uh, furnace and stove in the basement where they would sing. And I kid you not, we have, we have letters of this uh, written by some of the members still that would say um, they, they would put uh, shawls around the kids to keep them warm. I mean, we, all, we live in northwest Indiana. It's cold in the winter. Can you imagine being so dedicated to each other and to the Lord that you would go to church even when you were freezing and your church only had a stove? These are the people who seeded the roots of faith for us. Um, from here, this church would struggle. They would scrap. Smith would leave. He would go to California. That sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus probably called him to California. Uh, sorry, that's a pastor dig. We can make that joke. And uh, there was another guy that came in along the way. His name was uh, William Ward Ayers. William Ward Ayers pastored the church in the 1920s. Um, he was a man who loved Jesus tremendously and had a vision for the mission of the church. William Ward Ayers in the late 20s bought a Ford pickup truck, strapped a speaker to it like the Blues Brothers, and he would drive around downtown Gary preaching the gospel. They called it the Little Church on the Brown Truck. And uh, they would go throughout the streets preaching the gospel, trying to help people know the good news of Jesus. Uh, William Ward Ayers, he um, was the first pastor that I know of to put himself on the radio. In the 1920s, he founded what's called the Broad Religious Broadcasting Network. He was the pastor of Central Baptist Church. And he put on the word from Central all the way from the eastern seaboard to Houston, Texas, every single week, his message of the gospel would go out over the airwaves. And some of you can't even figure out podcasting. In the 1920s, this guy was preaching on the radio. Ayers would go along to pastor a very famous church in Manhattan, New York. And in his next stead came a guy named uh, Robert Ketchum. Uh, my grandfather knew him. He called him Bob, old Bob Ketchum. And Bob uh, was a man who was ferocious for the gospel. I want you to see on the backside of that bulletin insert that we gave you uh, some of the history of the church. And I want to, I'm, I'm going through this a little slowly right now because I want you to see the dedication that this church has had to mission. I mean, you can circle it on this bulletin from the 1950s. Time and time and time again, the mission succeeded. The mission grew. They devoted themselves to the mission. And Bob Ketchum was so uh, decisively pro-church planting that he planted missions all over the place. One of them in 1936 was a young adult mission that met now in where Maryville is. And he commissioned them to go out and start their own work. And in 1936, that mission became not the Brunswick mission, but what they called Bethel Baptist Church. And they found themselves a pastor by the name of Joseph Stoll uh, II. And he started preaching the gospel in Maryville, Indiana at a church on Wickham Street. 
And the gospel started to go out. Why? Because people from this church were devoted to the mission and gospel multiplication and sending people out and making sure people knew the good news about Jesus. Um, I, uh, I'm reminded that as this church continued to grow, they um, eventually moved from Gary, Indiana to this building right here and built this on 14 acres. A church that used to have just three plots of land built something on 14 acres. Why? Because they were devoted to the mission, continuing the growth and the progress of the gospel. For years, this church would uh, build into the community. They would build into the mission until finally in 2014, uh, the members of Central Baptist Church, so many of you are still here in this room right now, and I'm grateful for you. Uh, you had a, a, a very, what should have been a hard decision in, in, uh, in, in August of uh, 2014 to merge in with the very same church that was planted from Central over 80 years prior. Uh, but the people of Central Baptist Church decided that this was going to be a vote based upon not names, not money, and not pride, but mission. This is going to be a vote that decided, drew a line in the sand and said, we don't want to be a church that doesn't fulfill the mission. And if that means we put a different name on the marquee and that means we do something else, so be it. We want to see the mission go forward. And so in 2014, the members of Central Baptist Church joined forces with Bethel Church and became Bethel Hobart Portage. Thanks, Tony. I love you, Ben. Tony was one of the guys who led the charge for this, brother, and I'm so glad that you're a part of our church family, man. You're such a blessing. One of the cool things is that that day in August of 2014, when, when Central Baptist Church merged together with Bethel Church, that building that exists behind these people right there became the property of Bethel Church as well, or Central Baptist Church, because that building today is our Gary campus in downtown Gary. That merger existed and was funded by an operation that we as a church called Mission Them. There was Mission Them 1.0. Then there was Mission Them 2.0. Do you remember this? Maybe some of you don't even know this. This is the first time you've heard it. We did this because we want to be a church that always is reaching out and always fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave us to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We could say this another way, Scott, because I'm not from around here and I'm kind of learning where Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria is. It's like, it's like um, in Hobart and Portage and Lake Station, all the way to the ends of the earth in Chesterton. <laughs> That's actually not true. It's Laporte. I know. Laporte is the ends of the earth. You never drive to Laporte. Uh, God helps all those heathens in Laporte. <laughs> so here's why I went through all of that and kind of wasted all of our time. It's because we've always been a people of mission. We are the product of mission, and God calls us to produce mission. It is a continual effort that we pray, God, would you help us fulfill the mission so that the gospel continues to bear fruit and grow as it has been doing. And friends, it has been growing all the way from the days of Jesus to where we are right here, right now. And, and that's, that's where we're at. We yeah. want to be an externally focused church. We want to come alongside what, what the church has been doing for centuries, what Central Baptist Church had been doing since 1909. This is our call. This is what we've been commissioned 
to do. You and I are called to continue the same exact mission. So what does it look like? Yeah. What does it look like in 2019? What does it look like right now? How are we to be people who live on mission? I think sometimes we can overcomplicate this, but we have a few things here at the end. One of the first things we, we think this means, how do we be people who live on mission? We are all witnesses. Right. And we are all witnesses. There is no Christian who has not been called to live on mission for Christ. Yeah, that's right. right? Every single Christian is a witness because God has uh, intersected your story, has changed your life, and you have something to share. Witnesses are people who are not just comfortable working a job and raising a family, but, but they are dedicated to building the church. They're dedicated to being and making disciples in the everyday stuff of life. All of these ways are ways that we proclaim Jesus as the risen Savior of the world, and God has given you a story to share, and you are called to share it. Uh, The second thing I think this means for us as we continue the ministry of mission, that we are all witnesses, yes, but we are all called to grow in gospel fluency. And I know that could be, uh, might be a foreign word, but we all know what, what it means to be fluent, When we're fluent in something, we're able to uh, easily and accurately speak about something. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be able to easily and accurately speak about not only Jesus, but what he has done in our lives as well. And this is gospel fluency. We are called to speak the truths of Jesus into every aspect of our life so we might not only overcome the the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin Mm. in our life. But I think being witnesses and and, and growing in gospel fluency requires some groundwork. First, you have to have experienced what you're witnessing about, right? right? You have to have experienced what you're witnessing about. Second, you have to have someone to witness to. And then third, you actually have to tell them. I think a lot of us can get stuck. I know I can get stuck at, at one of these points. How do we make sure that we are continually living on mission for Christ? Um, one of the ways that my wife Bethany and I have done this, we uh, bought a house in Hobart about a year ago. We live over there by Strax, and we love our neighborhood, but we had no idea how to get to know our neighbors. And then uh, just when we were starting to do it, everybody went inside for the winter. So springtime came, and we thought, how are we going to get to know our neighbors? Well, one of the ways we've been doing this is we do a thing called Free Donut Friday. Free Donut Friday. And this is what we have done. We actually canvassed our neighborhood with like little flyers, and they were terribly... Uh, designed, but, and everybody thought we were selling something, but we just handed out flyers, and we said, hey, stop by, eight to nine on Friday morning, every Friday in the summer, and you can have free coffee and donuts. We want to get to know you. I'm pretty sure we thought we were insane trying to sell them something, and we thought, I thought for sure nobody was going to show up. Bethany was more optimistic, but that first Friday, we got donuts, we got coffee, we sat on our front lawn, and our neighbors turned up And we got to talk to our neighbors, we got to meet our neighbors, and those relationships have developed into spiritual conversations. It was awesome, awesome how God has blessed that. We all just want to know where you live. (laughs) Friday's coming, right? We only buy a dozen donuts, right? (laughs) Is there like a secret handshake you guys developed? Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) No, that's so cool, that's so cool. And uh, our time is uh, escaping us, so I want to just bring this to a close. But I think it also means for us that we grow in our cultural savvy. Um, what, what I think is that Paul, like he knew the culture in Acts 17 of Athens, we also need to be people who are aware of 
What are the idols of our hearts? What are the things in this world that are bridges for us to talk about the gospel with our neighbors? For, for me and my neighbors, it's the appearance of our homes. We live in a neighborhood that's very well put together. Everybody uh, has the idol of, uh, of luxury and, and has the idol of appearance and being like no problems. Uh, my neighbor and I, we, um, we don't belong in this neighborhood. Um, and so we're like scrapping together uh, to help each other out. And one day he helped me um, edge my uh, curb because both of our curbs looked uh, like we were poor. And so uh, we, he came over in the nudger and he edged it for us. And it looked beautiful. I was like, wow, I have a curb. And um, a couple days ago, my, my neighbor across the street, he said, uh, hey, man, you got some weeds growing on your curb. And I was like, ah. Oh. Jeff, I know, it looks terrible, and you just did it for me, thanks, man, but uh, here's how it goes for me. I said, uh, yeah, Jeff, one day we're going to live in heaven where all of our homes look perfect, and we never have to manicure the yard because it'll be always perfect. Maybe we can get Lucifer to do our manicuring for us, but until we live there, this is what we get for living in a fallen world, huh, man? And Jeff... Jeff, just this last week, he put his head to the ground and agreed with me and kicked the dirt. He said, yeah, man, sin and stuff. Man, I hate it. Which is no, Lord, help me, save me, but is a step. It's a plank on the bridge from my world to his world to the gospel to help him see that we've got different worldviews going on here. And I think about things differently and I want to have those spiritual conversations with you just to open up the door and say, hey, there are things about God that have to say something here in our culture. And, and lastly, nothing, nothing's going to work if we don't grow spiritually dependent. We are spiritually dependent people. Unless the spirit goes forward and empowers us, no program that we do, no effort that we put out there is going to succeed. We ought to be people who are constantly praying for the Lord. This is one of the reasons that every second Tuesday of the month we have since we started this campus had a prayer gathering right here in this auditorium. And it doesn't bother me if three people show up or 300 people show up because I know that the Lord answers prayer. And we have prayed faithfully for you. We're praying faithfully for the people who aren't even sitting in the rows yet. Asking the Lord, will you help us com complete this mission? Will you help us follow your lead? And as we've been praying, God has been doing some amazing things. The month of July for us was something um, that was a bit of a record-setting month for us. It was really a, a, you know, a, a banner month, one for the books, you could say it that way. You know, most of the churches in Northwest Indiana over the summer, they, they, they shrink because people go and they live on their boat or they go camping or something. But God has seen fit for us in the month of July to have one of the biggest attendance records that we've ever had as a campus, which is counterintuitive to what should happen. God is growing us in a season when there should be drought. The month of July was super cool. We had, I think it was our fourth VBS, and we had 246 kids come through our church to hear the gospel, which, which trumps the prior year by something like 90 kids. It was absolutely insane growth. We welcomed about 20 new people into our church through membership. We baptized about 12 of you, I think 12 of you at the lake, along with the three others that we baptized in the early part of the month. Now, you may just think those are like some statistics. You don't have a reference point for that. There's just a pastor bragging. I don't want you to hear any of that. I just want you to know that the work that God said he would do, he's doing as we fulfill the mission. And we are witnesses to the fact that God changes lives. And, and I just can't wait to see what God does as we all take this seriously, this call to be and to make 
disciples in the everyday stuff of life.